Alright, so welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019-2020 Lecture 33, Introductory Lecture on Dante's Paradiso, Cantos 18-20, to 20, The Spheres of Mars, Part 2, and Jupiter, Part 1, Slides 68, or 6, or ugh, 168 to 187. I've got 6 on the mind, I must be thinking about politics, right? In any case, Dante notes, we're still in Mars here, that Cachoeira can see contingent things. Contingent things are, uh, think of the word contingency, like a contingency plan. If things go wrong, contingent things are things that are re related to or rely on other things. And I think I have a definition here. Things in the future not yet chosen or done, as already done. Okay, so that's very interesting here. Um, because we see in heaven that hyperopia still occurs. That is the ability to see the future. In the inferno, we saw that those souls... Uh, they can't see the present, but they can see the future. They won't be able to see anything after the, uh, uh, the second coming and the last judgment, and everybody uh, except for them uh, gets their bodies back. Um, we also saw, we've constantly talked about, um, how can it be the case that one can have a fate and still have free will? It looks as if Cachaguida sees something in the future that is reliant on human choice now. How can it be the case that people are going to freely make their choices if the future is already set? And that is a very difficult question. In fact, it is so difficult a question that Kachiguita will not give us really a satisfactory or a sufficient answer. If I know what's going to happen in five days, does that mean none of the choices made by the people over the next five days that make those events happen were freely chosen? Or were they already determined, predetermined is the expression for that? And, well, what is this contingent information that Kachaguita has? As we said earlier, as we uh, talked about in, in great detail last lecture, it is the exile of Dante. It is the excising of Florence of a poisonous element from itself. A poisonous element, Dante, who is part of the factionalism, which is pulling it apart, who will then expose the factionalism through the work that we are reading here. He will go from the lowest to, in a way, the highest representative of his people, from an exile, or uh, one part of the problem, to part of the solution, and uh, to an eternal representative of it. Two funny things about that, Dante was not uh, reprieved of his exile by the Florentines until the 20th century, so it took them 700 years to let him back in. Uh, Roman, Romans didn't let Ovid back in until also the 20th century, so it took them about 2,000 years. Um, and uh, Dante's bones are still in Ravenna, even though he has a tomb in Florence. So uh, the, the people from Ravenna have not given uh, the bones of the most famous Florentine back to Florence uh, because he did not die there. They didn't, didn't want him. In any case, Dante says he has heard dark rumors. And remember, we've heard this from Chiaco. We've heard this uh, back in Canto 6 of the Inferno. We heard this in Canto 10 as well um, with Farinata. Something's going to happen bad to you and your Guelphs. Well, uh, Dante says this is true. Uh, uh, have these people been honest with me? And Cachaguida uh, uh, will answer obliquely, but then also very clearly. He says, uh, well, first he says, let me explain how uh, the vision of God works. And this is going to help clear us up uh, on this issue of contingency. Even though God sees all contingent acts done and sees what the future is, it is actually humans who make them happen. So even though providence allows the divine, God, to see everything that will happen, humans still do it. He just happens to have a 100% accuracy rate when it comes to prediction, uh, which is sort of a hard idea to wrap your mind around. Let's see a quote here. 
but does not on that account, this is the divine vision, become necessity any more than a ship which is drifting downstream drifts as it does because a man sees it. Okay, so that makes perfect sense. If I see a ship drifting down the, the, uh, a river or the sea, uh, I am not causing that ship to move. I am simply observing that that ship moves. This is supposed to be analog to God seeing what is happening and seeing what will happen, but not causing it to, because of course the free choice of man is causing it to. Otherwise, man would not be free, or would be the point of morality and assigning good and bad. We'd all be essentially robots of various levels of uh, functioning and malfunctioning. But we're not. Um, interestingly enough, the word robot is a Yiddish word for slave. Um, and we are not that. Then Contraguida lays out Dante's exile. It's injustice and the popular opinion of injustice. He also uh, gives Dante a small carrot to go along with that. Uh, you might say the uh, diamond in the feces, which is, uh, but your life will stretch beyond the time of your death, which in a way is what Dante wants more than anything. But I also think that that is in some ways cold comfort. Even if your life transcends your own, or if your fame transcends your life, it is not the case that uh, it is not the case that that makes your life while you're living it that much better. I wonder if it does. Let's take a look at the quote. Hippolytus was forced to leave his Athens because of his stepmother, faithless, fierce, uh, or, or fierce. That's a that's actually a very famous uh, story from uh, the play called Hippolytus, where his stepmother Phaedra. Uh, attempts to seduce him, tries to set up a tete-a-tete -tete with him, but he rejects her. And then she's so ashamed that she then writes a note to her husband, Theseus, saying that she was uh, taken by force, raped by Hippolytus, and then she commits suicide so that she can't be cross-examined. Um, obviously, Theseus then believes that her honor has been disfigured, that, her, that his son has done this, and he uh, attempts to execute him. Hippolytus attempts to flee, but then gets caught... Uh, he falls out of his chariot and gets caught in, uh, on either the back or the front of the chariot and gets dragged until his death. It's very sad. Um, and uh, that's what Dante is here being described as. Hippolytus running from his home unjustly, not justly in any case. And so you must depart from Florence. This is willed already. Okay, that idea of providence, but humans are going to have to make their own choices. Sought for, soon to be accomplished, by the one who plans and plots where everyday Christ is both sold and bought. That means the Pope. The Pope in the church. The Pope at this time is Pope Boniface VIII. He is already plotting the exile of Dante or the expulsion of the white Guelphs from Florence. The blame, as usual, will be cried out against the injured party. The wrong person is going to get blamed. The person who should be reprieved, who should not be blamed... Who, who should be uh, the opposite of blame, praise, is going to be the person to blame. The justice of the world is inverted, as Dante has so often said. The good people get the bad ends, uh, and the bad people get the good ends. You have people like Jesus, nailed to a cross and killed. You have people like Pope Boniface, getting to be Pope. And that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to uh, Dante, unless the world gets it wrong. But just vengeance will serve as witness to the truth that wields it. But there will be some justice at some point. You shall leave everything you love most. I feel like this is a very poignant line. Recall that this line is written by Dante after he has been exiled. You shall leave everything 
you love most dearly. Home. Family. He will get to see his family again, but not nearly as often. His holdings, his friends, his rank, his ambitions, everything goes away. This is the arrow that the bow of exile shoots first. You are to know the bitter taste of others' bread, how salt it is. And know how hard a path it is for one who goes descending and ascending others' stairs. And what will be most hard for you to bear will be the scheming, senseless company that is to share your fall into this valley. All right, I have at least three things to say about that. Let's see if I have... Uh, okay, well, I'm going to say these things first. Uh, first thing is this. Uh, Florence was known not to salt their bread. And so he's going to have to go to other cities where he realizes that the bread is salty. Now, that's one way to interpret this. There's a second way. Uh, salty bread means bitter bread, which means bread that he has not earned or made himself that is given to him as a gift, as if he's a beggar like Odysseus in his own home. It's going to be bitter and taste to him. Those are two ways you can interpret that. And I, I think the second interpretation is, uh, is supported by uh, just how hard it is to descend and ascend other people's stairs. It's not going home. It's going to a place where you are being put up for free. It's just not, uh, it's not a pleasant experience. But then he says that the worst part of all this is not going to be the fact that he has to live by begging, but the company he's going to have to keep. And the company he's going to have to keep are the white Guelphs who were expelled with him, who were also uh, plotting to get back into their city. He says, uh, this is where he realizes that the people he was with who claimed to want more than anything to make Florence a better place, apparently that's not what they want more than anything. They want to have power in Florence. They are exposed for who they really are. And in being exposed for who they really are, Dante sees who he was really being. Did he just want Florence to be better during his time in power? Or did he want to be in power in Florence during uh, a time when he could have the most possible power? I mean, that's a really real question there. Do you want world peace so that you can be the person who brought about world peace and people think you're a hero? Or do you actually care about other people? I think that's an important question to ask yourself. What is your motivation? In any case, against you they will be insane, completely ungrateful, and profane. And yet soon after, not you, but they will have their brows blood red. Very apropos of Mars here. Of their insensate acts, the proof will be in the effects course. And thus your honor will be best kept if your party is yourself. Give up the Guelphs. Give up the Ghibellines. Give up the factionalism. Think for yourself. Your first refuge and your first end shall be the courtesy of the great Lombard. This is actually a person named Con Grande della Scala, <clears throat> who uh, Dante actually um, dedicates the Paradiso to, and he writes a very famous letter to him. I'll have to include that uh, in the next week or so. He who on the ladder bears the sacred birds. Talking about his crest. And so benign will be his care for you. That means good, nice. Uh, with you too, in giving and in asking, that, that shall be first, which is with others last. Um, he will give without having to be asked. And so Dante's uh, need to ask will not be exposed. I think that's very kind. The idea being that um, the, the best way to give somebody something is not to wait for them to ask for it, but to just give it without asking. Uh, that shows great grace. So Dante, he will have the last laugh, supposedly, um, because his name will live on beyond uh, the time of his existence, which is clearly true. And Dante then responds to Cacciaguida's prophecy. And I, I would say that he embodies here 
the virtue of this sphere. Recall that we have moved into the cardinal virtues with these next four spheres. We ran into prudence and the sphere of the sun. We're running into fortitude here. Fortitude, recall, is synonymous with uh, courage and bravery. He is showing great courage. He knows that something terrible is coming his way. It's like knowing that death is coming his way to know that exile is coming. And yet, he accepts his fate, realizing that he cannot change his fate, even though he, he tries to ask Kachukui, well, uh, aren't these contingent events? Isn't there some way that I can change them? Kachukui says, uh, I'm sorry, no. Um, uh, even though it is the fact that people make their own choices and God only sees them, this is what is seen and this is what will be chosen. I, I'm sorry. So Dante, I will arm myself with foresight against the bitter injustice of the world. And so expecting to receive injustice, perhaps it will sting less. And perhaps Dante is not just saying this for himself, but for whom? Of course. All of you. Everybody. Who will have injustice and its bitter sting bite them or sting them in this world? Well, everybody. Everybody will not get what they deserve at some point. And they'll be expected to deal with it. And so, if this is something that's happened consistently and constantly uh, throughout all time, well, then you can certainly expect that it will be a part of your life. It will happen to you as well. And so you should be prepared for this, even though nobody knows exactly what's going to happen beyond for Dante God. Uh, this is certainly going to happen. Oh, well, good. Uh, very interesting. And I will give much bitterness to those hateful by recording these truths from heaven. So he says I can get my revenge by recording what these people have done so that other people can subject them to their judgments. Other people can see what Pope Boniface VIII has done. Other people can judge his name. I can defame him for all time while also in uh, or faming or granting myself fame for all time. Alright, well, Canto 18 then concludes uh, Mars with several holy wars, eight holy wars, and holy mostly because they had something to do with fighting in some sort of crusade, fictional or historical, against what were called at that time the Saracens. Those were the Muslim Turks. And uh, I had erroneously said that I thought there were something like 11 crusades last time, and uh, there are some smaller crusades than others. There are nine official crusades, so I, I would like to make that change in your minds. And so uh, let's look at the first four people that are mentioned here. One is one that we know uh, a little bit from Venus. His name is Joshua. Well, he was the second leader of the Israelites after Moses. After uh, You may know a little bit about the Old Testament. Moses and Aaron, uh, they led the Jewish people. They were called Jewish at that time. They were called the Israelites. Uh, there wasn't a second kingdom of Judah yet. There's some history behind all of that. There was a northern ki kingdom with the Israelites. There was a southern kingdom uh, called Judah. And uh, that's where uh, Judah... Judaism comes from, uh, and uh, the Israelites, that's where current Israel comes from. And just an interesting note, current uh, people who live in Israel called, are called Israelis, whereas ancient peoples were called Israelites, so they're not the same thing. Um, in any case, uh, Moses led uh, his people across the Reed Sea, across a desert, and eventually to a promised land, but because of some infractions that had occurred uh, <coughs> between him and them, he doesn't lead them into the promised land. Well, the person who does, that's Joshua. The same Joshua who sacked Jericho with the help of Rahab. And he was the second leader of the Israelites. Led them into the promised land. Big time thing. And again, this is someone who, what's the promised land? That's Jerusalem. Someone who led them into a holy land, Jerusalem. Um, we're going to see this pattern repeated over and over again in these wars. 
Well, who's the next person we see? Well, there's a fictional character rather than uh, a real one. His name is Roland in uh, sort of English, but Orlando in Italian. And he is a fictional character. He was the nephew of Charlemagne, who is also here, and we'll talk about in a moment. It came from a very famous uh, uh, work called the Chanson de Roland, which is the Song of Roland, uh, which you can still... You can still read it. It's fairly short. Uh, or something I'm reading right now, which is Italian by Ludovico Ariosto from the 16th century. Orlando Furioso. There's also another 16th century epic about him called Orlando and Nomorato. Uh, basic idea is that he's a very romantic knight of chivalry who fights against the Saracens in, in order to support his uh, uncle, Charlemagne. And so I should have talked about Charlemagne the next, but I'm going to talk about Judas Maccabeus between him. And uh, again, recall that these characters here, we see fictional characters, we see re real characters. We see Jew or Israelite characters, we see Christian characters as well. Again, uh, Dante is showing his broad-mindedness in a way by finding people from different traditions who seem to uh, embody the same values. And so there, there's Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus, uh, whose name even has Judah in it, was from the 2nd century BCE, or sorry, CE, uh, second century after Christ, he defended Israel, the Holy Land, from the Syrians, who were at that time uh, Muslim, and was eventually killed by them. And then, of course, Charles the Great. And uh, if you don't learn about anybody in history all year, you should probably learn about Charles the Great. Um, uh, he is also called Charlemagne. That's his French name. He's obviously French. He was the king of the Franks. The Franks are the French people. They are the free people. That's what to speak frankly means. I'm going to speak freely. And he was the first holy emperor, and very famously, he was crowned on Christmas Day in 800 by Pope Leo III. You may have seen, uh, um, or I don't know how far you are in your history class. Are you to the 19th century yet? There's a very famous other French emperor who was to be crowned on Christmas Day, but put the crown on himself rather than allowing somebody to. Do you know who that was? Oh. It was Napoleon. It was Napoleon. It was a great <laughs> inversion of what Charlemagne did. I'll have to check on that to make sure it was on Christmas Day, but I am fairly certain it was. These people are very symbolic. Um, Alright, in any case, the last ones. Now, William Duke of Orange, alongside Renoardo. They're, basic, uh, they're very similar people. They're from the same story. Just like Orlando is a fictional nephew of Charlemagne who is real, so is William the Duke of Orange, a real guy, and Renoardo is probably a fictional character. We don't really know anything about him. They came from a slightly different French story called Chanson de Geste, which means Song of Deeds. Song of Deeds. Um, and both he and Renoardo fought against the Saracens. Again, the Saracens are the Muslim Turks for Jerusalem. Uh, and William dies in 812. You can see, again, these are crusaders. These are people who fight either for Judaism or Christianity against uh, 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 Islam. And so, again, you can see, uh, just as I said, there were anti-Semitic elements in Dante's writing, naming, say, the, uh, the lowest subcircle of hell, Judeca, for example, you can see here, I, I wouldn't necessarily say a prejudice uh, against the Muslim people so much as an antipathy, because it was uh, the case at this time that uh, the Christians and the Muslims were fighting for the same land. They, they were enemies at this time. So, uh, so perhaps these days we would say that he had a prejudice, but at that time he was just identifying the enemy and the goal. Um, which is why over and over again, Saracens, 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 fighting the Saracens, and also why, of course, Ali and Muhammad would have been down in the Inferno in the Eighth Circle amongst the Schismatics. And so, then we see Godfrey of Boulogne, 
He was the king of the First Crusade. The First Crusade was in 1096, the 11th century, and was later king of Jerusalem, which means he won or he lost the crusade. He clearly won it. He clearly won it. Yes, and then Robert Guiscard, who's <laughs> called the Weasel, he was the Duke of Apulia and Calabria in 1056, the 11th century, leader of the Normans. The Normans are also French. Uh, Franks, Normans, they become the French. Uh, who took southern Italy from the Byzantine Empire. Byzantine Empire would later in uh, 1453 fall to the, uh, the Saracens, but the Turks at that time. And so a uh, very long history of conflict in Europe and the Middle East between the Muslims and the Christians and the Jewish people. Uh, very sophisticated, you know, not, not an unsophisticated topic to research. Um, a lot of old bad blood, even at Dante's time in the 14th century. And so Dante then turns to Beatrice, she is more beautiful, and he is ascended, I say, in the passive voice. I could say he ascends, but does he make himself ascend or not? Is learning active or passive? Hard to say. I suppose your mind has to be on. And he is ascended to Jupiter, the temperate star. And so, and as the change which happens, I always like this simile, when a woman recovers her paleness, throwing off an embarrassment, which has tinged her face with blushes. So it's after somebody, like uh, some lady, tells some joke or some maybe some guy who she has a crush on walks by and is like, "Hey," she's like, <laughs> she blushes. But then the blush goes away. So does what's red become paler again. And so, so was the change then for my eyes when I turned, <clears throat> because of the whiteness of the temperate star. It's really silvery white. The sixth, which had received me into itself. And question you might ask is, why is it not golden? Because this is the sphere of the just rulers, the kings. I saw the sparkling light of Jupiter, the radiance of the love that was there signaling to my eyes in our language. And again, you know, just something I'm going to say as you start to write down this informational sheet is, uh, since Dante's not moving, when he learns something new, does he simply see things anew? Because uh, if the spheres of heaven are all one, uh, though they appear different, do things just change for him when he sees differently? And uh, I'll, I'll even suggest two things to you. Does that mean that the more you learn, the more differently you see the world? And three, seeing as Dante will see as a human, very much like a human, at the beginning of the Paradiso, but will eventually have the vision of God, is the suggestion that the more arts you learn, the more you master the seven liberal arts, the more your vision changes from merely human contingent vision to more providential, divine vision? I think that's a very profound question. Is it the case that you can see more like a, an absolute being the more you understand arts, and I'll even add from this day and age, science? Hmm. There is a reason that we want to learn so much. I wonder if it is that we're attempting to approach an ideal like that. In any case, the sixth sphere of heaven, the third sphere that has a shape out of four, its occupants are just rulers. It is called... Jupiter, this is the reason that the biggest sphere of heaven in the sky above us in our solar system is called Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is the biggest of our planets and is named for the biggest of the gods, Zeus in the Greek tradition, Jupiter in the Roman tradition. And in fact, he has a series of moons that are based on uh, uh, the actual Jupiter itself, the planet, has a series of moons that are named after the lovers of Jupiter. Io is there, Europa, and several others as well, which I think is just very, very well done by those who first named that planet. In any case, the liberal art is geometry. That's sort of weird, just like how the sun 
the liberal art was arithmetic, just as Mars was music. So here we have in Jupiter, geometry, geometry of all things. The measuring and creating of boundaries. Ah, well, I, we might be able to do something with that. What's the theme? The unification or unifying of disparate persons into one uni unified people. So just as uh, very similar to Mars's uh, uh, perspective or theme, uh, also very similar to uh, the sun's, as the sun is, uh, takes two perspectives and unifies them into one, so Mars takes disparate uh, peoples and unifies them into one song or one body or one army. So here we see uh, several different sorts of people becoming one as well, and yet it will be a polity or a civilization. The idea being lots of different sorts of folk make one sort of people, which is essentially the idea behind the U.S. We have people from all different language backgrounds, historical backgrounds, different gifts, different, different everything, different races, different religions, and yet we are all one. We are all protected and offered liberty and justice for all. In any case, the shape of Jupiter. It takes a fairly weird shape. We've seen two circles, we've seen a cross, we've seen some geometrical objects. Now it's going to take the shape of an eagle. But it will do a little bit of geometry, a little bit of dancing for us beforehand. We'll see some transformations occur here, and that's actually how we're going to end up ending the day. And so what is the metaphor or the allegory of this sphere? And something uh, about the, uh, the, <laughs> the eagle that uh, the Jupiterians are going to form themselves into is it will be a talking eagle. This will be unique throughout all the spheres. There will be no one single speaker. So unlike in the sphere of Mercury with Justinian, where we had an emperor speak for an entire canto in Canto Six of the Paradiso, here we will have uh, a body politic, a unified body speak with one voice. So all the souls in Jupiter speak as one. It's like they all share the exact same what? Literally. Mind, voice, perspective. It's like they all share the same perspective. It's like what makes a good ruler. It doesn't matter where you come from, or when you come from, or what your religion was. Uh, and we will see uh, peoples from different religions, and uh, again, historical and fictional characters within this sphere. The main speaker, like I said, is the eagle, and um, all rulers speak with one voice, just as all rulers speak for one people, and that is why kings refer to themselves as we, because they don't speak for themselves. They speak for their people, so they speak for the body politic. The body politic are all of their peoples. Alright, so a couple things that happen right when we get into this sphere. Beatrice becomes more lovely again. We see the star change from red to white. Uh, it goes from Mars to Jupiter. And then we see the souls form into letters, D, I, L, and then uh, eventually, Deligite justitiam qui judicatis terram. They form themselves into letters, form themselves into words, they form themselves into a sentence which has uh, expressive meaning. Uh, and it means, uh, cherish justice, ye who would judge the world. And as the souls form into these letters and these uh, words, they sing. Just sort of like when we form meaning, we sing forth and speak it forth. Um, and interesting, if you ever read the Silmarillion, the divine being in that universe uh, sings forth the world. It doesn't speak it. It's not just the word, it's the sung word. Uh, unlike with the Christian religion. Which is interesting because J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Silmarillion, was obviously very Christian influenced. 
But then they will stay quiet as they embody the letters. They'll give us time to read. Apparently it's hard to listen to music and read at the same time. Especially if the music has words. The souls form themselves into 35 letters. And doing a little bit of math, you know that 35 is a multiple of 7. 7 times 5. So it is a significant number. And like I said earlier, it is diligite. That means, uh, that's in the imperative mood. Uh, cherish. Eustitium. You can see there with that I, becomes a J. Justice. You who, queen, would judge Eudicatus, the world, Teram. You notice that last letter there. That last letter is an M. That's going to be significant because the souls, they first dance across the sky as these letters, one letter at a time. And then that last letter starts to morph into the eagle that they will become. All right. Now, this M, <coughs> this M is unique because it's important to the theme of this sphere. Now, M, when I first ask you, what is the word that pops into your mind when you think of M? You probably say man. And I say, well, uh, not for Italians. Not for Italians. Remember, their word for man is omo or uomo. So it doesn't start with an M. But there is a word that has to do with leadership that does start with an M. Uh, that's very similar to our word, which is monarchia. I mean, sole ruler. Monarchy. A monarch is a king or a queen, in the case of Queen Elizabeth. So they we're seeing that there's several different ways to express the same concept. You can do it with words. You can do it with letters. You can do it with an image. It's almost like Dante is giving us a theory of semiotics, of symbols, of how to symbolize things correctly. What, what is a king? Is a king the word king? Or is, a word, or is a crown a better symbol for the king? What about an eagle? What's the best way to express what a king is? Well, there are just varying levels of sophistication in each of those symbols, but they all mean the same thing. I, I might say something about that when we get to a picture later. Um, in any case, take a look here and write these things down. The souls of Jupiter go through a series of transformations. First, they spell out one letter at a time, diligite, justitiam qui judicatis teram. They hold on the M. The M is supposedly like a face of man, but also the first letter of monarch or monarchia. I'll switch this for a second and then switch back. Uh, the way that M is supposed to look like man is it's supposed to surround the eyes and have O's between it, and then the M would be the middle letter of the word OMO. Your eyes are supposed to be the O's. M is supposed to be uh, the, uh, uh, the caverns around your eyes. There are two ways to see this. And so, I think that's very interesting because it seems to be the idea, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a monarch, who must you understand and be capable of ruling first if you are going to rule other people? You must, of course, be capable of ruling yourself. And so the better you understand yourself and what a man or a human is, the better you can rule a people full of humans. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And then a couple things there. So M, like the second letter, Omo, like, man, like the face of a man, also like monarch, monarchia, then transitions, turn, starts to turn into an eagle. You can see step one, step two, step three, right here. Figure one, figure two, figure three. The eagle, as you know, was the symbol of Jupiter and of Zeus. In fact, the eagle was sent down by Zeus, Jupiter, in order to capture Ganymede, the son of Tros, and take him into heaven. We saw a representation of that in the first dream of Dante in the Purgatorio, right before the gate of Purgatory. 
Um, the eagle was also the, sim the imperial battle standard of the Romans. In fact, um, when an enemy general would be defeated by the Romans, he would be promenaded down, uh, down a walkway in front of every Roman present there uh, while they yelled at him, threw things at him, hissed, and then he would be forced to kiss the imperial standard of the, uh, of the eagle and then be beheaded after being utterly humiliated. And also the eagle is, of course, the symbol of our people, the American people. And yet our eagle is a bald eagle because our eagle does not have a crown because we do not have a crown. We do not have a monarch. We believe that the voice of the people is the voice of God, essentially. Vox populi, vox dei is literally what it says um, on the courthouse in Milwaukee. Uh, the voice of the people is the closest thing we have to truth in a democracy because that's what we base our decisions on. So make sure you vote, uh, I suppose is what that's saying there. All right, though justice is represented in different ways, the take-home message is the same. So like I said, Dante believed that the letter M also resembled a human face with uh, two eyes being O's, making the word OMO, which is the Italian word for man, like the Latin word HOMO, which is the Italian, or the Latin word for man. Recall that our species is named by the biologist Homo sapiens. That means wise man. Technically, it's Homo sapiens sapiens. Uh, uh, man, wise, wise. <laughs> and that means that to understand mon monarchy or kings, one must first understand man. And to understand man, one must first know one's self. And so it's like what Dante has gone all the way through hell, purgatory, and heaven to do is to understand the universe, God, or something just as profound, himself. It's like you, as a human, are the most difficult and profound thing possible to comprehend. And so, it's interesting, and Socrates is Phaedrus, which Dante would not have had access to. Socrates, in the very first couple pages, says, you know, there's so many people, they walk around, they ask what the heavens are made of. And they ask about whether a pegasus, which is a flying horse, could exist. Or, or a hippogriff, or a chimera. And he's like, but I'm still stuck on, what am I? Because I think that's the most profound question. I... I think that really is interesting. When you're young, I think you more than anything want to understand everything except for yourself. You think, I'm not that important. Uh, I need to understand physics, or how a black hole works, or, or jet propulsion engines. And yet Dante and both Socrates seem to suggest there is nothing more complicated than you are. So you would do well to understand yourself before moving forward in this world. And, uh, Mr. Schmidt, to a large extent, agrees. agrees. So, the symbol then morphs into an eagle from the letter M. The eagle is the symbol of Zeus slash Jupiter, depending on whether it's the Greek or the Roman tradition, which is the symbol of Rome, their imperial eagle, like I said earlier. It's also the symbol of the United States, so you can see how a symbol transforms over time. I'm helping Dante make his point, and uh, that uh, some things stay the same as time progresses, some things uh, change. And, but even when some things change, other things stay the same. So how the symbol manifests itself uh, has changed. We have a bald eagle, not a regular eagle. But uh, what? And what else has changed? Well, we don't have a king. The Romans had an emperor after their uh, republic fell to Julius Caesar slash Augustus Caesar. In any case, the eagle represents a couple very important things. Higher perspective. Because an eagle, as an aerial creature, flies above things. And recall that Dante is himself flying above things in the spheres of heaven. He will actually, in the sphere of Saturn, look down at how much ground he has covered. He will review. Re he will review what he has seen. He will look down onto the earth. And actually in Canto 27, he will, he will see his journey like the scar of Odysseus's knee. Uh, 
You'll see the mark that he has made through his travels, interestingly enough. But the second thing that an eagle represents is acuity of vision. In the medieval time, and even in the Renaissance time, uh, because I saw this literally today while reading Orlando Furioso, the uh, people believed that eagles could stare straight into the sun and not be blinded, which is a clear metaphor for a human staring into the truth of the ultimate sun, the divine, and not being blinded. Though, of course, uh, Dante will still be blinded. There are still things that are too big for him. And so, uh, an eagle represents something that can see more than other creatures. And so, a king or a ruler must be one that sees more than other creatures. He can see difficult truths, perhaps difficult truths about himself. Hmm. One must see one's land and people to govern them. One must understand oneself in, under, in order to understand one's people. This is, uh, I think, a very sophisticated image here. It shows, it shows the transition of symbols of uh, worldly power over time. Uh, I'll just say one last thing to conclude this. You see first, a theriomorphic form of a god, an eagle. You then see second, an anthropomorphic form of a god with hands and feet, like Zeus. And then what do you see behind him? A geometric symbol, even more abstract. A geo, uh, a geometric representation of God. It's like symbols get more sophisticated over time.